yesterday as uh, our families uh, with little kids in the children's area went to um, have their hayride and their picnic out at uh, Greg and Laura Jackson's place, I had to suffer by keeping our youngest grandkid, Grayson, in our home. I was actually enjoying it. I wasn't suffering. I loved doing that. Um, but we were just playing around. I was chasing him. We were having a good time. He was playing the guitar. He was trying to strap it on his, around his neck. Uh, we, we loved to play hide-and-seek and peekaboo and, peek and stuff like that. We ate. And after a, war, after a while, I just held him. And he was grabbing my face and smiling at me. And, and I know it's, it's, a, it's a thought that has been close to our hearts these last two days. I couldn't help but look at my grandson and almost cry, thinking about those young ones who were killed in Newtown, Connecticut. We, we live in a society of violence. We live in a world that is plagued by all kinds of violence. And sometimes you almost get used to them, but there's something that touches all of our hearts when it touches the little children uh, in, their, in their innocence, in their, in, in their child, childlike life. We, we just can't imagine that happening, but it, it does happen because of the world we live in. And in the shows that I've watched on television, the news shows that talk about that, they've had some, some psychiatrists and some pastors uh, who they were, they, the question that kept being asked is, why would God allow this to happen? And I, I don't know if I'll answer that this morning because I don't really know all of the answers to that. It's kind of like the book of Job. We know the book of Job. We know what happened to Job, but God never explained why he did what he did. But one thing that he said to Job at the end when he asked those questions beginning in chapter 38 is basically answering the question not of why, but who. This is who I am. And so I want you to brace yourself and answer the questions I'm about to ask you about who I am. And of course, at the end of the book of Job, Job repents and he said, I've heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes and therefore I repent. Because the answer to our questions is not really the explanation of why things happen, but it's an explanation of who our God is, who is the one who is in perfect control. And this morning, as we go through the, the series on the, the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to be looking at Matthew, and we're just going to be looking at basically two things about him in chapter 1 of Matthew. And my prayer this morning, and I've been praying for us as a church and for us as a nation is that we will find this morning comfort and strength and confidence in who Christ is and who Jesus is. And that when we see these things, it is more than just a story, a Christmas story to us, but we will see what God has been wanting to do, has been doing really from Genesis 1, which is to reveal himself to his people through his word. And I just want us to look at, look at a couple of things, and we will basically concentrate on the names of the Lord Jesus Christ here, and we will look at him, and I know it's not explicit in the text, Jesus being the Son of God, or the Son of Man, as, as mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, 
referring to his ancestry, to his human ancestry, and also him being the Son of God, referring to his uh, uh, ancestry from, from God himself. Names are important because they mean something. When Kim and I first married, I did not know uh, what names meant, but her name, Kim, means chief and ruler. The name Lacan means chief and ruler. And, And I'm so thankful for the Lord that he is the one who is the chief and ruler in our, in our marriage. And, uh, but names mean something. Most of the times, I know we, especially in our day and age, we like to come up with names. And people, a lot of people do, which is fine. But in the Bible, when it speaks about God's name and speak about, speaks about the names that you find in the Scripture, those names mean something. And when, when we look at the names that are mentioned here about the Lord Jesus Christ... I want you to see what they mean, and I want you to take heart in who your God is if you know Christ as your Savior this morning. Because it, it, the world we live in, it's, it's, there, there will be a time of consummation. The nations will be judged. Those who have rejected Christ will be judged. And even us who know Christ as, as our Savior, as, as our God, and as our Lord, we will be judged for the works that we have done in the body while we're here, even though we know Christ. And we will be judged, according to 1 Corinthians for the things we have done in the body. And so we will all be, there will be the judgment, there will be an ending of things. And that, that is the reason why it is so important, and please pay attention, it is so important for us to understand the fullness of the revelation of God from Genesis to, to, to the book of Revelation because without that overall understanding of who God is and His plan of redemption and His person and His character, we are left to grasping at straws when bad things happen in our lives and we don't know what to stand on and we don't know how to even ask the question or how to feel or what even questions to ask because we, we, are, we, we are almost like tossed, as, as the Bible says, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And so it's kind of like it's this hodgepodge, this, this eclectic ideas about who God is and we're just trying to, to grab at all of them and we can't find a solid foundation. But when you see who God is, When you find out from the scriptures who he is, then you and I can have confidence, we can have peace, and we can have what we call the biblical hope. And I call it biblical hope because here, like for instance in West Texas, when we say, well, I hope it rains, you know, it's more than, it's it's kind of like wishful thinking. But the biblical hope is the confidence and the certainty of something that God has already promised. And therefore we can... We can, we can expect that to happen in the future. It may not be in our lifetime, but we know. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And the answer is no. So here, let's look at the text here. And I'm not going to take the time to read verses 1 through 16, but I want you to see here the, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his human ancestry. This is... This is the son, this is the son of man. Of course, the word genealogy is where the, the Greek word for here is where we get the word Genesis. This is the beginnings. This is the, the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first word that is used here, the first name that we find Matthew recording for here without even missing a bit, a bit is he said, his name is Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus. The word Jesus or the name Jesus is a, 
to a Jew meant something very, very significant. The one Yeshua that they could remember prominently was the one who led the nation of Israel after Moses' death into the promised land. He led them into the, the blessings of the promised land. And this Jesus, the, the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament had prophesied, is going to be the one who's going to lead us into the blessings. He's the one who's opened the door for us for this eternal life that, that God has promised. So it is, and his name means Yahweh saves. It means the Lord saves. And then he mentions the name Christ. Now, a lot of people think that Christ is the last name of the Lord Jesus. Actually, it is the word Christ is from the Greek Christos, which is the translation of the Hebrew uh, Messiah, which is where we get the English word Messiah. And, and it simply means the anointed one. And in, 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 in the Old Testament, there were three groups of men who were anointed. Prophets, help me out. Prophets, priests, and who? Kings. Prophets, uh, uh, prophets, priests, and kings. And no one, nobody in the Old Testament has ever occupied all three offices except for Jesus son of Joseph, the son of Mary. But not only that, he's also called here the son of David. Now again, to a Jew, this is a very significant title because this is more than, this is more than the, uh, like just tracing his lineage. The, the line of David has to do with what God had promised to David, what we call the Davidic covenant. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to this, what God told him in 2 Samuel. When, remember when David wanted to build the, the, the temple for the Lord? And this is what God says, part of what he said to him. He says, the Lord, or Yahweh, declares to you that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. And he's basically saying, you want to build a house for me. I'm going to establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, or your seed to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. Listen to this. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I remove from you, from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Well, you can see the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at here, the, 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 the lineage, if you go to first. To first Kings, first and second Kings, first second Chronicles, you would be able to find the, 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 the lineage of, of these kings all throughout the nation's history, and you will find that God had established, He had even He had even preserved his, that kingly line through the line of David. But not only was he called the son of David, because no Messiah would have been called Messiah, been considered, no person would have been considered the Messiah except he came from this uh, as, from the line of David. He was also called here in verse 1 as the son of Abraham. And again, the son of Abraham here refers also to him going back to that Abrahamic covenant of what God had promised Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Listen to what he said to him. Now, 
the Lord or Yahweh said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. When he says, and in you, is implied that the seed that he has, it'll come through him. The seed of Abram will become the lineage of, of Christ. The, the, the seed itself, the Messiah, will come. Of course, in Genesis 15, remember when 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 Abram was, was out in the wilderness and he was kind of like asking the Lord, he says, Lord, I don't even have a son and my, my servant is going to inherit everything that I have. And God tells him, he says, to look up at the stars. He says, if you can count them, he said, such will be your, your descendants. They'll be as numerous as the stars. And then he tells him, he gives him this covenant again, ratifies the covenant that he had made with him. And as, as God passes through those, the, as, as kind of like the, the, the torch, the burning torch, the, the fire pot, going through that, that uh, place of covenant that, where God made the covenant, and he's basically saying, I am making this covenant, and it's through you. It is through you that the seed of the Messiah will come, that the Messiah will come. And so we know that his name is Jesus, referring back to what God had done through his nation to a man named Yeshua, just like Yeshua ben Yosef, Jesus' son of Joseph. There was a man who led the nation at one time to the blessings of the promised land. He was also Christ, meaning the Messiah. He was the promised Messiah because the, the word Messiah means the anointed one. He was prophet, priest, and king, all in one. He was the son of David, and he was also the son of Abraham. Now, beginning in verse 2 through verse 16, what you find are names. And, and I know we like to pick on the four women uh, who are mentioned here. We like to pick on Tamar, who was a Canaanite woman who lived in the area of the Philistines, in Timnah, who, had, who was married to uh, Judas' oldest son, On, and, and, and you know what happened to her in, in, in Genesis chapter 38. And of course, Rahab was the prostitute in Jericho. And then Ruth was the Moabite woman who was uh, one of, uh, lost her name. Uh, they call me so-and-so and the what? Ruth, thank you. I just, it just, not Ruth. It is Ruth, yeah, Rahab. And then Ruth, of course, was a Moabitess. Who is it I'm thinking of? I lost her name. Naomi, thank you. And, and then, of course, Uriah's wife, who was Bathsheba, who committed adultery with, with King David. And we like to pick on them. And we say, well, this, this list, you know, it included those four women. They're not all even Jewish. And they committed all these kind of weird things and... And God was showing his grace. Well, I want you to see something and consider something. Beginning in verse 2, Abraham, all the way to Joseph in verse 16. I want you to see something. I want you to understand the explanation of the scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation. That all of these people were 
in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, because not one of them is perfect. There is this sense in our midst today and in evangelicalism that makes us think somehow that there are people more deserving of God's grace and God's salvation than other people. And that's normally shown by the way we speak. We will say, well, you know, we, we have salvation, but those guys, who, and those killers, like, for instance, those, those terrorists, those um, Muslim terrorists, you know, they, they just, uh, we, you can forget about them. Well, guess what? You and I are no different than they are because we are sinners just like they, they are today. Except the only difference is you and I know the Lord Jesus Christ today. Listen, they are not more, nobody is more deserving of hell than you and I are in terms of, of the, the, the level playing field in terms of where we are in terms of our relationship with the living God. Everyone has sinned. There is no one who is righteous. And every one of them is by the grace and the mercy of God that you find it here. In fact, if anything, that's something that you and I need to understand. That the only reason you and I know Christ, and have even heard the saving grace of the Lord, about the Lord Jesus Christ is because of the grace of God. Because no man, according to the scriptures, seeks God. There's no one who seeks God. And I don't know where we get this idea that somehow we are, some of us are more deserving of salvation. And I've, I've told you this before in some of the groups that I meet with. There's a, a man who was branded as a heretic. Uh, his name was Pelagius, P-E-L-A-G-I-U-S. And he basically said that man did not, was not born with sin. And that he participates in the sin of Adam when he begins to commit his sins. And somehow we, we'd say the church has branded him as a heretic, and yet a lot of us have become semi-Pelagianists because we think that by our moral conduct, somehow we can, because we're better, we have not killed anyone, we've not mowed down 26 people in Connecticut, that somehow you and I are more deserving of heaven than, say, Adam Lanza was. But that same free gift was offered to him as it has been given to us. And then in verse 16, I just want you to notice this. And it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Messiah, or called the Christ. I want you to notice how it's worded here, because it tells you something. It gives you a glimpse of what he's about to say in a little bit later on, when he says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Mary of whom was born Jesus, talking about that Jesus is no longer in, in the lineage of Christ, both in Matthew and in Luke and, in, and even in Genesis, Genesis 5 and Genesis 4, uh, Genesis 5 and, 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 and so on and so forth. The, all the genealogies, you will find that the lineage is normally traced through the man. In fact, the word seed normally has to do with what, what is from a man. And here it says, but husband of Mary, Mary of whom was born Jesus. And so it's implying there that he, that Joseph had nothing to do with his conception, with Jesus' conception. And then verse 17, it says, that's where there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Now, some of you have been counting and have went back uh, in your quiet time to Kings and Chronicles, and you counted the, the, the number of generations, and then you find out, hey, there's more than 14. 
on each one of them. Listen, in the, in the way they reckon genealogies and the way they do that is they don't always trace. Like, for instance, when you say son of Abraham, doesn't mean that he's the, the, the immediate son. It means part of the lineage. And he's just establishing here for historical verification for the nation of Israel who Jesus was. And so he picks 14 generations from, from one period to another and to the exile and then from the exile to the time of Christ. And then it says, now, we, that, that is a long, really long, long lineage, beginning in verse 2, of the human uh, uh, background of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, his, his uh, uh, human uh, lineage. Beginning in verse 18, it's interesting, you find one verse that talks about who he was and his divine heritage. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And it simply is talking about that she was, she, and we know from Luke what happened to her when, 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 the, when the angel told Mary what was going to happen and uh, that the Holy Spirit has come upon her, that this child that she was carrying is the child of God himself, not through human uh, ancestry or human means, but it's through God. So God was the one who birthed this, who, who conceived this child. By the way, let me just say this to you. The, the phrase or the concept of immaculate conception has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And so let, let's make sure that we, we understand that. I, I grew up Roman Catholic, and so I was, this is part of what we were taught in Roman Catholic doctrine, Immaculate conception had to do, has to do with Mary being sinless and not committing any sin when she conceived Christ. Now, let me, let me show you in, uh, in Luke what we call the Magnificat. And Mary, this is after the, the angel had had appeared to her and told her what was going to happen. And Mary said, this is her song. And she said, my soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, why would a perfect person need a Savior? Of course she wasn't. There's nothing in the scripture that says that she was without sin. And so I just want you to understand that. That it's not Mary who was sinless, but it was Jesus who was sinless because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 18 that she was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. To be pledged to be married, it's kind of a weak translation in the English, but it, it, some of your translations would say betrothed, and that is more of a formal thing for, for them. And when you get betrothed, and, and, and I know at, in, in the way we look at things today, in, in fact, even some of the, the books I've read or the commentaries I've read about this, they would explain, for instance, Joseph wanting to take care of Mary in a nice way because he was in love with her. Well, that concept was not really in the scriptures. It's not in the Eastern culture. Normally, when in, this, in this case, normally their parents, the parents of Mary and the parents of Joseph, would arrange for their marriage. And normally the woman would be anywhere from 12 to 14 years old, and the man is a little bit older than that, uh, I don't know if this has anything to do with what Plato said, that women should be younger so they could be of child, they'd be strong enough to, to be able to, to uh, bear children, and men should be older because they need to be older to be wiser. And 
I don't know if that's true or not, but that's how in Eastern cultures, that's how they did it. Parents arranged the marriage of their children. Wouldn't you like that, young people? I see parents nodding their heads, but I don't see any young people nodding their heads. It's actually a good idea. But anyway, that's what they did. And when, when, they, when, the, first, when the families would meet at first and finalize it, normally the, the, uh, the, 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 they would, there was an exchange of dowry to make sure that everything, normally the, the parents of the woman would, would give money to the man. It's, it's kind of like a down payment in case something is wrong, goes wrong with, with, the, uh, with the, this betrothal. And, and then they can take care of things and also to help with the finances of when actually the uh, when the wedding takes place and the festivities and all of that. And normally this betrothal period is anywhere from 10 months to 12, 12 months. And what the husband does then, they're considered husband and wife. In fact, you cannot break a betrothal or this quote-unquote engagement except by, by filing for divorce, by actually seeking divorce from that person. And it's normally not the woman seeking divorce. It's the man who will, who will actually do that. And during that period of time, well, Joseph finds out that this girl, this young lady that he was engaged to, that he's betrothed to, is pregnant. Well, it says, verse 19, Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Of course, we know that this is more than just disgrace, according to the law of Moses, that if a woman is caught in adultery, she should be stoned to death. And so he didn't want any of that to happen. So he wanted to just simply just kind of put her away, divorce her quietly, not let anyone know. And probably, I, don't, I didn't know what he was thinking. But in, in fact, in verse 20, he says, after he had considered this, he was thinking about this. And he's probably heartbroken, probably feeling sorry for himself and feeling sorry for Mary also. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because of what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Again, here we encounter the name Jesus and it means Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. And that's what the name Jesus means. See, the function of the Lord Jesus Christ is not to make life better. It's not to make people and the culture more moral. It's, the problem with men is sin. Too often, I think, when we think that by simply changing the morals of our society, and yes, we need to, to strive for that, but it cannot simply be limited to the change into something better in the moral atmosphere of our culture that will change this world. The problem with man is ultimately his sin. And the answer to sin is not what, it's not a 12-step program. It is not you and I doing better, trying harder, so we can be better citizens and be better people. Because really, apart from the Lord, you and I have no hope of even doing anything better. Jesus said this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, the mouth speaks. He's talking about people who were false teachers. And, it, and he's basically saying you cannot function differently other than what your true nature is. 
And if our nature does not change, if we're still lost people who do not know God and the Spirit of God does not live in us, according to Ezekiel 36, when it says, And I will remove their hearts of stones, and I will give them hearts of flesh, and I will put my Spirit in them, and I will write my laws and my decrees in their, in their hearts, and I will cause them to obey my laws and my decrees. It says, Only then will men, men be changed. It's only if the Spirit of God indwells us. But simply following external rules do not touch. I mean, what? I, I, I saw that they had increased the speed limit on Interstate 10, like by junction all the way to San, or towards San Antonio. It's now 85 miles an hour. Guess how fast people are going on that highway? It's, it's faster than 85. I've been there, I've done it. I, I'm confessing. When it was 80 miles an hour, I thought, well, maybe I can get away with 83, and I'll set my thing on 83. Guess what that is? It is the sinfulness. It is the sinful desire to violate something that has been set for us. And the only way we can escape from that enslavement to the law and to the rules, the external rules about us, where we are functioning from, when we are functioning from the inside, as Ezekiel and as Jeremiah talks about when, we, when we've been given his spirit and he writes his laws in our hearts. Only then will we change. So he says, he tells Jesus, he says, give him the name, or he tells Joseph, give him the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves, because that is the purpose of Jesus' coming. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He did not come to make people better. How can you make dead people better? You cannot. But what he does and what he's done to, to most of us here this morning is he's made dead people come alive by giving us his spirit. Verse 22 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. This is a phrase that is repeated in the book of Matthew. And really you can see this all throughout the New Testament. The New Testament, as you look back into the Old Testament, what you see, the promises of God, the things that, it, that God had prophesied through the prophets over thousands of years and they were coming to, true, coming to fruition, being fulfilled. And Matthew records for us, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Again, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Of course not. What God has said in his word, he is doing. He has done and he will continue to do. And it says, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Some people would say, Isaiah, this passage is taken from Isaiah chapter 7 when Ahaz was, was uh, when he was feeling the heat from, from uh, the northern kingdom, from Israel, and also who had allied itself with Syria in Aram. Uh, and, and he was afraid. In fact, Isaiah 7 says that they, they were literally shaking in their boots. They were so afraid. They were like leaves shaken by the wind. And, and so God gives this prophecy. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. But some people will say, well, the word for virgin in, in, in uh, Isaiah 7 is the Hebrew word Alma, A-L-M-A-H. And it can mean a virgin. It can mean a virgin who's never been with any man, or it can also mean someone who's just a young lady. Well, if you have any doubts, and that's true. By the way, that is true. 
The Hebrew word Alma can mean that, can mean those two things. But the word that is used here for the word virgin in verse 23 in the Greek, there is no question. It is unequivocal in its meaning that she's never been with a, with, with a man. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. But I don't want you to miss the important part of this prophecy. And they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when you look back in the history of the nation of Israel, and of course in the history of man, what you find over and over is God in the garden when he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden because of their sin. Guess what they lost? They lost more than the provision in the garden. They lost the very presence of God in their lives. And of course, God would show up from time to time to different individuals and then to a nation as he birthed this nation in, in Exodus and as he gives them and as he saves them in chapter 14 and then he tells them, gives them instructions on how to build this tabernacle and the book of Exodus ends which says there was this cloud coming down that descended on the tabernacle and says the glory of God was in the tabernacle and that is the presence of God. And of course, after 400 years of silence, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I love how John records this in, in his gospel, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Tabernacled amongst us. The word tabernacle in the Hebrew is the word Mishkan, which comes from Shakan, which means to dwell, to rest, or to abide. From this word, we get the word Shekinah, which means the presence of God's glory. Shekinah, the presence of God's glory. Emmanuel, God with us. I want you to understand two things about God that is both true and both very important for believers to understand. One one characteristic, one, one thing that you can say about God is he is the transcendent God. The, trans, the word transcendent means that he is this holy other God. There is no one who can come close to him. He alone is God. And when we come before him, we bow down, we get down on our faces, we're fearful, we're afraid, we, we, because we are sinful people, and He's a holy God, meaning He's one who is not only without sin, but He's totally separate from us. And that is why Moses could not believe that people would, would live after they, they've heard the very voice of God in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He says, I cannot, this is my paraphrase of the text, he says, I cannot get over this thing that anybody, that people will hear the voice of God out of the fire and live because he's this holy other God. You remember when they were in, in the mountain and they were afraid to even touch the mountain and the people said, you go talk to God. And Moses didn't even want to do that, but God told him to because God is this transcendent God and on Sunday mornings when we gather here, he's the transcendent God that we worship. He's the one we bow down to. He is the the, the object and the subject of, of, of our songs. He is the one we, we give to. He, he is the one we pray to. He is the one we, we hold dear. He is the one we confess to and repent, repent of our sins to. 
He is the holy other God. That's the transcendent part of who God is. But there's also a concept about God that somehow, in, in, in my mind, cannot grasp a lot of the things that the Scripture talks about God. This God who is bigger than anything that is the created thing in all of the things that's known and are known, somehow will invade time and space and become man. Because he wanted to be, you and me, to enjoy his presence. And so when we talk about the imminence of God, he is God Emmanuel, God with us. That he's a God you can approach. He's a God who approaches us. Of course, only through, through Christ that you and I can approach him, as the writer of Hebrews says. That he's a God that now is here. He, is, he was the God who John describes as he, he, the word became flesh, and literally the Greek says, and he tabernacled, he dwelt amongst us. He is the tabernacle. Paul, addressing the divisions of the church in Corinth, said this. He said, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? He's talking about the church. And and, and that's still true today. You and I, as the body of Christ, as College Hills, as all the church here in San Angelo and all around the world, the spirit of God, we are his tabernacle. He lives in our midst. He is in our midst. But not only does he talk about the corporate thing of, of the body of, of, of the, 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 the church being the tabernacle of the Lord, he also talks about our own physical bodies, our own individual bodies as being the tabernacle of the Lord. And the first one that I mentioned earlier is from chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. But in chapter 6, he said this, Do you not know you, that your body is a, is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So when he talks about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and just simply giving him the name Emmanuel, they're more than names. Talks about God's, his person is and his character and his plan. Well, it's not just He's here with us today. I mean, he is. But I love as John sees this vision of what is going to happen after Christ comes back, establishes his thousand-year reign, and then at the end of the ages, there's one final battle. It's not much of a battle. In chapter 19 of Revelation, and then in 20, the judgment of the nations, and the, I mean, the judgment of, of Satan and his demons and all of those who have rejected Christ. And in chapter 21, this is what he said. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to this, now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying or pain, for the the old order of things 
has passed away. And then John said, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So not only can we enjoy the presence of God today, He is God Emmanuel. But we can also look forward to the day when we will when God will dwell with us in the new heaven and the new earth. And he said, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and it descends on the new earth. And it says, and the dwelling of God shall be with man forever. And there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more crying. See, only as we get a perspective of what Christ is accomplishing and will accomplish in all of history, can we make sense of the things about us? Well, let's look at the names again. Jesus, the names that we encountered here in, this, in chapter 1. Jesus, the Savior. The Lord saves. He, saves. he will save His people from their sin. He's called the Christ, meaning He's the promised Messiah. He's called the Son of Man, which speaks of His humanity. And at the same time, by the way, when we hear the word Son of Man, it refers to more than just His humanity. Because there's a subtle... When, this is Jesus' favorite designation of Himself in, in the Gospels. There is a subtle... For Jesus, there was a subtle implication of who He was. A lot of people, even for us today, when we say Son of Man, we think, well, it's His human origin. But, but it's more than that. It is more than that. Listen to... Uh, to da Daniel chapter 7. And this is where that phrase, Son of Man, was used. This is in my vision. Daniel was writing this. This is in my vision. At night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority glory and sovereign power all peoples nations and every and men of every language worshiped him his dominion is an everlasting is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed notice the things that refer to him more than just him being a, a person or a, a human being it says he was given authority he was given glory he had sovereign power he said he is worshiped not only that, he says his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, son of man is more than just his human ancestry, but it refers to the implications that Daniel tells us about. He's also the son of God. He's the seed of the woman, not of the man, according to Genesis 3.15. And he is Emmanuel, God with us. When I was watching the news this last two days, the question that I heard a lot over and over is, why would God allow such a tragedy to happen at this elementary school and in this town? Well, the Bible tells us that man is sinful. 
Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. In Romans chapter 3, it says, there is no one who, who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God in their eyes. And you know, like I said, we, we, I get this sense that we are semi-Pelagianists in practice, meaning that somehow we think we can be more moral and somehow we can attain to God's salvation by our morality. But the Bible is pretty clear about where you and I stand, that you and I, apart from the grace of our Lord, you and I deserve hell forever. And the only reason that you and I can have hope this morning is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. The more I understand the Scriptures, the more I, I read the Scriptures, the more I understand that man is sinful. In fact, he, Paul summarizes it this way. He says, for all have sinned, past tense. We all have transgressed. We all have violated the person and the character of God. And says, and fall short, present tense, fall short of the glory of God, meaning the standard of God no man can ever attain to. No man, not, not one. I don't, care, I don't care how many times you walk on your knees from the, front of the, from the back of the church to the front. I don't care how many times you beat yourself up uh, or you get nailed on the cross. Or I don't care what you do. I don't care if you give all your money to whatever cause you want to give it to. It doesn't matter. But the Bible is very clear. It says we all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, really, there's nothing but condemnation for us. You and I don't deserve anything. You and I don't deserve the salvation that God has given us except by the mercy and the grace of our Lord. You and I, cannot, you are not, you and I are not good enough. For we all are like sheep. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, We all are like sheep of gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. We all have done it. And we look at the book of Judges and we laugh at them. And where we say we feel sorry for them because the book of Judges ends with, in those days Israel had no king and every man did what was right in his own eyes. We still do the same thing today, don't we? We call it postmodernism. It's as old as the garden. It is not modern. It is not reason. It's as old as the garden. We think we can do better. We think we can do it on our own, and really we cannot. And that is why the answer, I, I saw some psychiatrists, and I appreciate one, appreciated one of them yesterday saying, we cannot explain this tragedy simply in terms of the clinical uh, analysis of what this person, and we don't know what's gone on with him in his past, since we don't know what's happened to him, but we cannot simply look at it from that perspective, simply limit it in the idea of a clinical approach to what he had done, is that we need to understand that there's evil in this world. And of course, the concept of evil presupposes a concept of good. 
And the concept of good can only be there if there's a concept of God. And the concept of God can, is only there because God has manifested himself and not only in nature, but he's revealed himself in his word and he's told us what he's doing. And the word, the word, the Bible that we hold in our hands, this is not just a book on morality. It does contain morals and ethics, but the primary reason for the Bible is not for us to find cute verses that we like or something that we can just pick out of it, but for us to understand who God is and his plan of redemption for all men for so that from the beginning of history to the consummation of the ages when the new Jerusalem comes down on this new earth and the dwelling of God shall be with man forever and there'll be no more tears, no more mourning, no more death, no more pain, no more crying. Only then do we understand what's going on. And I appreciated that man when he said, it is not just a clinical thing, it's that there's a presence of evil. Well, how do you deal with evil? You can't make evil people just be more moral. And, and already there are some people who are saying, well, you know, we need to just... In fact, I think there was a congressman who said we need to revisit the, the gun control. And, I, and I, I was thinking about this. Adam was in a perfect environment. Adam did not have dysfunctional parents. He did not come out of a dysfunctional family. Adam didn't own a gun. And yet he sinned against God. You know why? Because sin is lodged in the hearts of men. We, we launch sin from the darkness of our hearts into whoever we want to offend, into whoever we want to harm. And we don't even have to touch them. I know Adam touched those lives and those families' lives by what he did. But you and I today, we can hurt people, like Jesus said in Matthew 5, said that you have heard it said before, you shall not commit, you shall not murder, you shall not kill. But I tell you that anyone who, who says basically in, in, your own, in your own heart and you have this problem with a brother and you speak ill of him and maliciously against him, you have already been guilty of that. Where is our hope? Our hope is not that we become better people. Our hope is that this nation gets saved. The answer is not in psychotherapy. In the, the problem, the ultimate problem in, in, in psychotherapy, uh, some of the things, of course, our doctors, they provide help for everybody. But the ultimate problem with men is sin. And that's why we need a Savior. And that's why God sent His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Christ, Son of Man, Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. His presence is with us, not only today, but we can look forward in the future when His dwelling, the dwelling of God, shall be with man forever. So what do we do? Well, we grieve with the families. We pray for them. I don't know about you. I've been praying for those families. I don't know them, but I've been praying for them and for the town. And one of, one of my prayers is that God would raise up believers in that town and around that area who will show, who would hug them with the hug of Christ, would love them. Jesus, that's what Jesus did. But at the same time, let them know that there's a God in heaven who loves them 
through his son, Jesus Christ. Because that's the answer to our problem. You know, we, we laugh about that. What is the answer? The Sunday school answer? Jesus. No matter what the question is, the answer is Jesus. There's a lot of truth to that. The answer is Jesus, the Messiah. Let us pray. Father, how much, how your heart must ache and must grieve. Father, for the sinfulness of man, how from the garden, Father, we have so turned away from you that we have come to a place where there's even a natural neglect and violence done even within the family. And even as we're horrified and grieved by what happened in Newtown, Connecticut, Father, I also think of what we have done to our children. And we've called them fetuses and we've killed them by the millions. Because we have not seen things and life through your perspective. We have seen them through the lens of our own wicked hearts, our wicked, sinful, rebellious hearts, and try to make sense of the world based on what we understand rather than trusting you for who you are and how you've revealed yourself. And so, Lord, would you help us? Would you be gracious and merciful to us? First to your church, Lord, that you will wake us up, that we will be your people, that we will not take you for granted, that we will be serious about our walk with you, and Father, the, the call that you have placed in our lives, the reality of who we are, that we are witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the task that you have given us of making disciples of all nations, beginning with the people around us. And Father, would you also be merciful to our nation? Would you be merciful and gracious to us, Lord, as a nation, that as you use your church to tell people about who Christ is, Father, that you will convict people's hearts and that you'll turn them from their sins and their idolatry and turn to the true God through your Son, Jesus Christ. And that, Father, that you will save many souls and that families, Lord, would find their hope and find their confidence and find their peace in Christ and in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing this song to the Lord? If any one of you needs to talk to someone about anything, either church membership or maybe you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, some of our elders and I will be here uh, at this time and also at the end of the service. And feel free to just come and visit with us.